Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Ryan Cromwell, who is a technical director at Sparkbox. Ryan Cromwell, welcome to Maintainable. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So, you know, I was thinking about as we're preparing for this conversation, and we'll dig into Sparkbox a little bit more in just a bit. But as you reflect on your experience in the industry, you know, at this point in time, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software code? That's a that's a really good question. I think I've changed my opinions a little bit over the years on what that means. Um, you know, I I work with a lot of really awesome, smart folks. And I've done that over a long, fairly long period of time. I think if, if you're asking me today, if you're asking me now, uh, my answer would probably be, you know, we're building things for business, right? Like there's, it's rare that we're building things for ourselves, or at least at Sparkbox, we rarely are. So if we feel like we can continue to deliver at a pretty consistent, predictable, I guess, if you will, pace and let our, our clients and our team feels confident that, that we can continue to evolve software, we're in a pretty good spot, Right. That's the biggest gauge I'm looking for when it comes to more tactical things about maintainable software. You know, I, I really love deploy pipelines, you know, build and deploy automation, things like that. And I feel like if, if we're able to deploy well on a regular basis, we feel pretty confident that we can deploy regularly and, and without too much thought, I guess, if you will, that we're doing pretty well. I, I, 100% 100% believe in things like testing and, you know, being able to measure certain parts of software. I know that it's hard to do those things. And there's there's certainly debate to be had on how much testing should be happen to, happening out there. But if we can meet some of those two things, which is regularly deploying our software, consistently delivering on, on the value that we're trying to deliver for, for at least Sparkbox, our clients and our customers, the rest of it is there to enable those things. And we want to make sure that we're doing the right amount of that stuff to, to support it. So, Interesting. And when you're working with you know, your, your clients and their businesses and you're talking about to kind of get some context there, are you, uh, when you're saying how often and frequently and how simple it is to deploy, I think there's a lot of you know, ways that teams can make that happen. But is, are we talking about like a, multiple times a week, multiple times a day, a bit of combination or what does that kind of frequency look like on that you think is like maybe potentially somewhat ideal for the types of work that you're doing? Yeah. So maybe it is important to, to describe kind of the software that we build. So we build software for other people. We're not a SaaS provider. We don't build a product for ourselves. We're usually working with, you know, different companies to build for them and whatever their ideas are. And they're all a little different. I think it, the ability to deploy without having to think about it is something I look for our teams to do. Uh, you know, I we are collaborating on things like Git and GitHub and source control and design assets. And if if the team can work around those areas and the natural flow of the work they're doing, so making pull requests and getting those pull requests deployed automatically so that they can collaborate around working the, work, the software that they can play with and touch, um, either with each other on the dev team or uh, with our clients or potentially even users. If that happens automatically, I think that's that's the real place that we want to get to. Some of our teams are deploying you know, within 
you know, a pre-production environment many times a day. Sometimes that's, you know, with cool tools like a, a Heroku or a Netlify or, or something along that line or and getting those pull requests deployed. Some of them are only, you know, they're a little more complex, so they might only be deploying master to a pre-production environment and and doing those, you know, maybe once a day or a couple times a week or things like that. Like I'm, those are healthy me- measures for me on the deploy frequency. I think, you know, we work with some Clients have gotten pretty mature and and it does take time and it takes effort and, and investment, but they've gotten to the point where they can deploy to production, you know, sometimes a couple times a day or at least a couple times a week. And they feel they feel like they can do those things. It doesn't mean they always go super well, like there are problems for sure. And that's where we look for, you know, in our architecture and the way we build code, do we have the seams in our system that allow us to build something that we can deploy regularly and maybe canary deploy something or even shut some, uh, some, shut, some shut something off with a, a feature flag or and sometimes those can be even something simple like an environment variable or you know just a hey if it's we're ready we're going to make the commit to turn this thing on and so it's turning something from true to false or false to true or something like that like those are some of the things that we're looking to to support the ability to deploy on a regular basis so you know, it's funny. I was I was literally on a client call the other day, and one of the things that I was advocating for with the way that their team works, because they have a number of different software products, and we're one team, external team, similar as a consultancy, outside agency, and we're one of a couple teams that they're working with. They like to have more consistent, specific times when they want things to get deployed because they're kind of doing like a final sign-off on things. And I found us in this conversation, I'm like, well, we're potentially running into issues where we're trying to push too many things out at the same time. So we're organizing a bunch of things through a pull request process. We're getting a bunch of sign-offs over, you know, throughout the sprint. You know, the client has 10 things ready to get pushed out to production, but they're all going on at once. And so if something does trip up, there's more digging around to figure out what it was and, and it makes it more of a, complicated mess to extract that back out of it right and so i'm like well we're trying to advocate for more frequent deployments and they're like but the problem their perspective on their end was well then they can't predictably plan their life and their schedule their job because this is one of many projects that they're responsible how how have you handled those types of conversations to kind of advocate for shipping things more frequently but also knowing that the people that might need to be signing off and reviewing that may have other things and want some predictability on their schedules too. Yeah, I think it's 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 hard. It takes a little time to build up that confidence. We have those conversations with folks up and down all the time, right? And honestly, it's, it's just happened for us recently. You know, the e-commerce world is is in this boat, right? They during the holiday seasons, right? They have this holiday season. They a lot in the e-commerce in the e-retail space. That's called peak season for a lot of those folks, and they get super nervous about deploying because that's that's when they're going to make all the money for the the year. And so, you know, we know that getting new features out there helps them and. We also know that we built up over the course of the year the, the ability to deploy on a regular basis, but they're still nervous about it. And so we accumulate, we just had this recently where we accumulated all this change and boy, everybody was super nervous about this deployment. It went well, but it could have, it could have gone south. I think you're building up confidence in folks that, you know, hey, we, we can deploy these things, but we don't have to necessarily turn them on, right? We're separating the idea of features being available and their timelines that they want from the ability to deploy, right? So separating feature enablement or feature release from feature deployment, I think that helps us a little bit. 
I think that's that helps the conversation because it is it is a people problem. You know, all, all most of software is a people problem in us collaborating, figuring out how to work together across different needs and dependencies and things. So, yeah, I, I think we have to have a lot of empathy for what those folks are trying to do too, and find the right model that works for everybody. I want to talk a little bit about technical debt. First of all, does do you do you and your team use that as part of your vocabulary within your team? For sure. For sure. We talk about it. Uh, and do you have a kind of shared de- definition that you think that your team shares at the moment? That's a great question. I don't know that anybody could sit there and describe it in the same terms uh, on our team, but I think everybody knows it when they see it. Our team thinks of it consciously because we know that there is, we do think about the quality of our code and we do think about the impact of the quality of our work on the long-term sustainability of projects and and products that we're building for folks. We know that we're also going to be making decisions to focus energy and effort in different places. I don't know if you've seen it before or heard of it, but Michael Feathers, he's got that book on on maintaining legacy software and things along that line. And he had that diagram years ago. It's gotten, you know, it's been out there for a while now around you know, maintainability or complexity of software and like how often it changes. So churn. And, you know, he outlined these different quadrants and the, the things that change a lot and are very complex. Those are like the source of bugs, right? And we want to find ways of mitigating those issues. But the things that that don't change a lot, it's okay for those things to be maybe more complex because we get them right and we let them be stable. And we might put some safety uh, measures around them uh, to keep them safe, but um, those types of maybe tech debt from a when you're not thinking about churn or not thinking about how often this thing changes, that kind of tech debt might seem scary, but but it's maybe acceptable in certain situations because of the stability of that code base there. So I think we we try to think of it, but we try to think of it in kind of those pragmatic terms that that we can accept certain areas where the code base is never going to be perfect because we don't. We don't know exactly how the software is going to change either. And so what could be the perfect architecture could fall apart on us when we try to make a pivot towards a new set of features and find out, well, maybe that wasn't wasn't the place we wanted it to go in, the, in reality. Right. Do you find that there's often a mislabeling of technical debt by software developers, like examples where you're like, well, I wouldn't necessarily call that technical debt. Maybe that's bad code or... Where's that distinction line for you? I don't know. I never really thought of it that way as whether it's mislabeling it. I do think there is a a bit of opinion in there, right? You know, and I think that's okay. Um, I, I'm glad we're talking about it, I guess. Whether or not we're mislabeling decisions, like if they're a conscious decision to make those choices and we still call it technical debt and we're okay with it, I, I don't really care what we call it, I guess. But I... I think we could easily call something that that works, you know, the best software in the world. Some of it's been working for 20, 30 years. It doesn't have any unit tests. Nobody really thought about the cyclomatic complexity or maintainability. Nobody's running code climate quality on it or ESLint or something like that on it. It's been out there, but it's being used and it's providing a ton of value to somebody. So, you know, it's a hard thing to, to, to shove something into tech debt and then assume it's a bad thing. But if it's slowing you down, for sure, like, let's let's figure it out. Let's take a quick step back and learn a little bit more about Sparkbox. What types of projects does your team kind of specialize in? And are we talking greenfield projects, existing apps, a bit of both? 
Uh, a little bit of both. I would say more than more often than not, we're working on new apps. But we have a lot of a lot of folks that we work with for a long period of time. That what was a, a brand new project has become, you know, kind of a brownfield project. But I would say that a lot of folks come to us to start new things or to to build an, a thing again. Just you know, scary too. But we do focus in a certain area. So we we are almost exclusively building things for the web. Right. We don't do a whole lot of native development and things along that line. So it's going to be, you know, certainly we do a lot of the React development. We live in things like the the e-commerce space on a regular basis. You know, Vue.js is, you know, certainly popular. We build, you know, webs, whether it's just web apps or websites, however you want to describe some of those things. But it's almost always web related, um, kind of full stack, whether it's Rails, PHP, things like that. Okay. And do you often find yourself collaborating with like internal development teams at all? Yeah, we we like that a lot. The way I've uh, described it to a lot of folks is that we're pretty we can be pretty needy. We like to talk to folks a lot because we know we're not usually the experts in the space, and we often know that we're going to build something alongside of a team, but then that team is somebody that's going to maintain it long term, and so we want to work pretty closely with folks. We. We love to get on, you know, whether it's Hangouts or Zoom calls and, and things like that to collaborate. We do a lot of pairing. We ask a lot of questions around design or whether or not features and functionality work. A lot of times we end up working with teams like we might be working on a project, but our goal is also, you know, what we might call leveling up a team or helping them grow in a new skill set, whether that's how we build software or how we collaborate. A lot of times that's really what a team is trying to do is figure out, hey, how can we embed this idea of collaboration really deeply into our organization? And maybe it's maybe it's come alongside a group that does that on a regular basis. We do a really good job of looking for folks with to join our team with a lot of empathy, a lot of humility, and clearly like technical skill is important there. But those two things help us, I think, build soft the right kind of software for folks and make sure that we're we work really well with other people. So Nice. And you know, it kind of sounds similar to some of the types of things that we do as well. And I'm, I'm curious about, you know, when, when you're, re, you know, you mentioned looking for people that are like technical, you know, like your software engineers and stuff that have a high level of empathy. And, you know, I think sometimes we call those soft skills, which I hear about people calling probably should be called hard skills. You know, as you're going through like a recruitment process, what sort of things are you, how do, how do you find your team trying to like suss that out from people like to get a good sense of that? We've tried to figure it out in a couple of ways. Hiring is really hard, right? <laughs> I was just on a, a Twitter discussion with some folks about like technical exercises, right? And, and trying to figure out. So I, it, you know, whether those are right thing to do or wrong. And, and, you know, I think a lot of the questions that we ask are, are asking about how folks like to interact with other people. They're asking about how they've engaged in challenging situations. Some of those first conversations with folks is, you know, what is what is their empathy level, humility level? Are they asking about tough conversations they've had with with their team and, and seeing where the teams that they've worked on maybe in the with the past? We we do do a technical exercise at Sparkbox, and that's relatively new, maybe two years now or a year or so. Um, and a big part of that is pairing. And it's just like, you know, how does this person work together? Because we don't, we're not asking anybody to come out and build something amazing in, you know, a couple of hours. We know that that's not going to happen. But what's it like, you know, if what's it like to work with this person and jump on a Zoom call and, and we know we're going to screw up in those pairing sessions. And, you know, can we, can we go back and forth on those types of conversations? And I think, 
if we can vet out technical skill separately and then spend a lot of our time on asking questions about how they've interacted with their client or their their teammates in the past work on that pairing session together uh, usually it's you know on a zoom like this and those are hard right it, you've 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 not built a relationship with this person you don't have anything to back and forth talk about so you're you're building a relationship during that that initial pairing session and it's that can be that can be tough i think that that really helps though we we do a similar process in our, when we do like our technical interview. And that's not the first, I think it sounds like we have a similar process where our first interview is more of get to know someone, see if they pass uh, some sort of these high level checks on our end to see if it's okay. This is the right, maybe the right, because we're definitely trying to find that someone that we think we're going to, they're going to be good client facing in particular. And I think there's software engineers, there's like a stereotype that we might, an archetype in our industry of like, oh, someone puts their headphones on and just huddles away in a corner on their laptop or computer and just plugs away nothing but code. They're just constantly producing code. And I think what we know is that most of the time we're talking about what we're going to be working on and then we go do it. And then we come back and we get close enough and then we go to make some changes and keep working through that cycle. And it's it's not something that we always find is easy to identify in people early on, you know, like when you're talking with them. So I think it's always a little bit interesting for, for those listening that might be curious about maybe applying at a company that's more client services based. Do you have recommendations on how they might highlight that somehow in, in their, when they're reaching out versus, cause I know that we get people that apply to my company where it's like, they, I'll ask them like, what about the, the type of work that we do interest you? And like, Oh, you use Ruby on rails. And I'm like, that's great. But like, but we do, we're client services and that's probably more important to us than necessarily the Ruby on Rails part of it. We're not just looking for a developer. Do you have any advice on how people can maybe apply, improve their chances of being seen amongst all the uh, other people that are applying for a position for our type of industry or at least our type of business? Like you, you described, I think we, we do run into that same, we run into a lot of different types of clients and customers and problem sets that require us to learn a lot and have these, um, kind of nimble feet and and trying to jump around from topic to topic. And so I think being able to explain like, why, why do you like Ruby on Rails? You know, and, you know, how did that solve that problem for you? You know, what about, you know, are you using active job? How are you using some of the different architecture patterns that you can implement? Like, why did you choose to go with an API only Rails app? You know, and what were some of the decisions behind that? Because a, a lot of times in our, I don't know if this, I, I would imagine this is similar for you as well, but a lot of times we have to explain why we want to make a decision and being able to articulate that is a skill, right? And it's something you can practice. And I think it's something you can get better at, but it is something that we're looking for, being able to explain your decisions, explain why. We have a role at our at Sparkbox called a tech lead. And one of, some of the things that we, we ask out of our tech leads is that they be able to communicate really well um, and be able to explain you know, decisions, uh, but also to be able to understand and like have those conversations, ask the right questions of clients to find out if the things that they're suggesting really are right. And it's that collaboration, that communication, also be able to articulate what maybe their technical vision is to the team on a pretty regular basis in the right context, because... You know, we have different levels of folks uh, or across their career, right? Some folks that are just starting out in their career and, and some folks that are, have been doing this a while. And when, when you're acting in this role of tech lead and you're working with somebody who's in the midst of working on a feature, right? They need to be able, and that could be our folks, that could be our client, 
you know, team members that we're working side by side with, you kind of have to help them understand where this thing fits in the grander scheme so that we are building it, you know, right. Why are we using this, you know, design, you know, software design pattern? Why aren't we super worried about the scalability of this one little area? Because it's maybe it's not the thing that's going to get used the most. And we're just trying to figure out if this is right. Those are skills that I think that show that surface in a, in a client services resume better than I can do Ruby on Rails. And curious about your tech lead role there in the client services world. Do you have tech leads that are also responsible for produ- producing code? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of them are. And some they might not take quite as much of uh, the cards, I guess, if you will, or the, the, the features that are going to be built on the, the project because they... They are. When we talk about our tech lead and kind of set the cadence of our projects, we're asking our, our tech leads to kind of get ready for the next bit of functionality, right? So, you know, we we do work in kind of an iterative cadence. We work in like week or two week intervals, not quite scrumish, but close uh, in those ways. And we're trying to figure out, hey, how are we going to change the architecture next? Or what are we going to add on there next? Um, what's it look like? Where are some of the dragons in this stuff? And think about that. Um, maybe they're working with UX folks and design folks to figure out what the experience should look like in the design. And they're taking that and, and breaking it apart into potentially like components, cards, flows, describing what APIs. And they, maybe they're not doing all that, but they're making sure it all happens and they own that stuff. But they, at the same time, you can't do those things if you don't know how the system works, right? So it's picking and choosing the right pieces of code to work on. I think that ivory tower architect, I'd like to think, is is not very effective for us, at least. No, I, I can appreciate that. That, that. that can be a challenge to balance that role of thinking about what's ahead and then also helping be the one that's removing blockers. And then also just trying to get your own tasks done. You know, when you feel like you're like, oh, no, I'm so I, I find that it could be challenging for at least some tech leads to relinquish some control or of the code some or let me say code or at least be good at delegating out to the the team do you have a tech lead role at your yeah we, we do on every one of our client projects and we struggle sometimes because it's not always it doesn't always work the same for every client project it's almost like there's there's some projects where there's maybe a higher level of maybe there's more stakeholders that we have to interact with and so the amount of time the tech lead can spend maybe deeper in the code is limited and or if they're too deep in it then they're not keeping up with the the amount of things that are happening so i think it's trying to find a good balance there of trying to find that good ratio and i don't think we've we always it's it doesn't ever feel like we have it exactly right but it's like okay maybe we need to in the next sprint or two reduce the amount of time you're specifically coding like because we because we're feeling we're missing some things in the conversations here or like okay you're feeling like you're idle a little too much so just yeah take on some more stuff but like a recent challenge we had was um, a tech lead knowing that the team's really busy the other people on the team are really working on some set of new features and they're kind of deep and there's like a bug that pops up that's kind of important and they're like who and then they volunteer themselves to be the one that dives into and tries to solve it to protect the rest of the development team but then they may be losing a half a day sorting that out and then not making momentum on the things that are needed to get queued up for next week so those types of challenges i think can be difficult for a tech lead but it's also part of what comes in with that role. And so I think it's an interesting education thing about trying to reframe your expectations or also knowing that a lot of tech leads, you know, they were software developers, you know, they are software developers and now they're in this slightly different role where they might not attribute those conversations and those collaborative work as the same as being productive or like the only value I have is when I push some code. 
And that's how do you help your team kind of get past that that mindset? Oh man, we had we had exactly that scenario recently. We have a super awesome developer on our team and the work that they do is just fantastic, right? They when they've been kind of that individual contributor and you know, they've taken on that role of of tech lead for some individual feature sets over the last couple of years uh, and always do a, a great job. And then we we said, hey, all right, there's this time for a project. Like this is perfect for you right in your wheelhouse. But in some ways, this was a challenging situation because there was there was a lot of overhead to this particular client and the way that they made decisions internally around approval of designs and experiences and, you know, the things that come with working with organizations and that's okay. And so he ended up spending a lot of time in meetings on this particular situation and he was getting frustrated and I can understand that, right? You want to be able to make progress, but you know, it can be a challenge to make that transition from I work cards, I move them across the board. If you're using something like a board or whatever, and I get, you know, my value is in, in shipping code and it took a while and it took a little bit of experience, but then I think what we saw as, as, as we had conversations together about what this experience looked like, they started to see that by doing those things, the team was able to do incredible work, right? Enabling incredible work across four or five folks that even if, if he would have just been an individual contributor there, that wouldn't have happened. He may have been able to, to move plenty of his own cards, but the software that we were building as a team because of his efforts in understanding what the client worked on and things along that. And we were eventually able to have this conversation that maybe your role right now is to help them realize the impact of their internal decision-making process on our ability to make progress. And if we can fix that, you can start lowering the overhead of making progress. And now all of a sudden we can unlock the team, right? So your goal, unlock the team so they can go do great work and you go solve this problem over here. And I don't think that's always apparent that a a tech lead, because it still has the word tech in it, right? Like, I, I feel like I should just be the, the great programmer on this project. But there are some other problems that are, that are necessarily solved to unlock some of that work. And I think a lot of, a lot of that is just one-on-one conversations, judging what each individual situation needs. Uh, as we've grown, we've been trying to build out kind of guidance for what what career ladder stuff looks like, what you know certain critical roles look like building that up and and having those situations come up and just kind of outlining them almost like a like an internal case study a couple paragraphs to say hey this was a project here were some of the challenges and here's how our tech lead was able to help our made the pm and some other folks on the team solve this problem has started to build out this kind of bank of it's almost like run books for uh, if you remember run books you know hey you got this error code go do these things it's almost like run books for for a role and it's it's never going to be perfect, but we have started to describe some material that we can now hand off to folks that are growing in their career and saying, hey, I'd, I'd love to be a tech lead. Can I try this out? And we'd be like, yeah. So here's some scenarios. Here's some things you should probably think about. Um, and this is what it can look like. Go give it a try. I feel like that, that's that been one of the roles that's been the hardest for us to keep revisiting and redefining and updating in some ways, because not everybody is a immediately a natural fit for that. And there can be, I, I use the word like sense of entitlement because you've been around longer in some ways, but it's not always, doesn't always play to someone's like communication strengths. And that, that can be a challenge. And and it's hard for them to get away from that sense of being like, you know, as you're saying, like you shipping cards, you know, pushing features out, shipping code, 
or just even solving those little riddles in code and seeing that the thing worked on your computer throughout the day, you don't get that luxury as a tech lead in the same way. It's like it takes a while for the things you're doing to pay off. And 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 so trying to help them understand the uh, when their team is being successful and pushing stuff, that's when you get you're part of that. You know, you're not on the sidelines necessarily. You're like helping coach them in, in a way, but and removing block, you know, blockers and things like that. And I like that the phrasing around you're you're there to unlock the team. We'll be back with our interview with Ryan in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for listening to Maintainable Software Podcast. Yada, yada, yada. Are you listening to this while you commute to work? Maybe you're listening at the gym. Maybe you're listening while you're trying to fall asleep. And I don't know that I have the voice for that, but I'll try really hard to talk slowly. Whatever it is. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing links amongst your peers and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be speaking with and having on the show? Send me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Ryan Cromwell. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to dig a little into the weeds of, as far as some of your, uh, you know, you touched a lot, I think, on some of your culture. You, know, you mentioned one and two week kind of iterations, you know, kind of your hybrid version of maybe something scrum, agile, infused. Do you have metrics that your team is trying to track on a per project? I think earlier you were talking about measuring a kind of a predictable pace. Is that something, what sort of metrics are you able to use in, in these types of projects? That's something I've been thinking a lot about. I wouldn't say we're great at it. So I don't know if you've ever read the book. Have you read the book Accelerate yet? I've really enjoyed it and appreciated it. So we, as a client services, maybe you run into this too, as a client services, all our environment can change a little bit. You know, we, when we were smaller, you know, the types of clients that we worked with, they came to us and said, Hey, we don't have any dev infrastructure. We don't host anywhere. Like you be our experts. So everything that we did was out on our GitHub account. We used our own project management tooling, CI, certain continuous integration was done with the tools of our choice. Maybe we deployed to, you know, a rack space or a, a digital ocean environment. And as we've gotten bigger, we've, we've, we've worked, started to work with different sizes of clients that come with, you know, GitHub Enterprise or, or Bitbucket, Lassie and all the things. And they've got, you know, maybe Jenkins or they're doing Travis. And so, and the reason I bring that all up is we do try to measure things, but it can be really hard to get consistent kind of cohesive view of all the measurements coming out of a process, naturally out of a process when all the ecosystems change so much. So we, we do, we do look at things like, you know, we do, we at Sparkbox, we do sizing, however we decide to do it. Um, some, every project does it a little differently, but we try to create, you know, we talk to our tech leads and our PMs about creating economies around estimation and sizing and, at the end of the day, we're trying to figure out how can we help clients make decisions with that information is help them understand the, the problem they want to solve here could be this big or that big. You know, it could be if we do it this way, it could be fairly small. Um, if we try to solve this problem this way, it could be fairly big. You know, is the juice worth the squeeze to you? Um, and that's the decision we're trying to make there. We The one thing that I think we're pretty good about measuring is deployments. That's something I think that's fairly consistent per environment and pretty simple to measure. So we do look to measure how often our team, that's something I look at is how often is 
a team deploying. And if they haven't deployed for a couple days, I'm starting to get nervous. Or if they consistently deploy once a week, you know, there are some going off track with what the project, you know, that's a lot of times the source of a problem. So those are a couple of the measures in the, the reason I brought the book Accelerate up is because there's some really cool measures that they talk about in there around like uh, what's called mean time to recovery. And that's, you know, hey, deployments are going to go bad, but how long does it take you to fix it? Right. Because it's a natural course of uh, a bug comes up or you ship something and that one feature didn't work. You know, how do you how long does it take you to recover? I think that's pretty hard for us to, to measure without manual intervention right now. And I don't think I would trust a measurement that came out of like somebody writing it down on a spreadsheet or something. Um, another one is lead time. And because we end up using, you know, sometimes we'll use our tooling for for tracking work items or whatever. And sometimes we'll use different client versions. It can be really hard to get that across to our entire organization. We're, we're still thinking about it. We're trying to figure it out. I'm curious, do you, what do you all try to measure? Well, in, in the, the spirit of time, I'll try to be short, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one outside of, I mean, I don't know what your billing model looks like if you're pricing per sprint or by the hour, you know, we're an hourly and we do kind of like a blended rate. So, yeah. You know, and, and we're, we do hourly as well. And it's like, obviously one of, probably one of the curses of, from my perspective as owner, being a business owner in this world is like, well, that's a challenging one to constantly be talking about hours all the time. Cause it's not what our clients want to really talk about, but it's easy for them to compare price points on hours and stuff like that. But uh, without going into all that, but things about, you know, the things that we're, we're attracting on our team is thinking about, you know, we're, is it when our development team's coming together, we've tried to come up with some scorecard type metrics that we can at least report on things that are kind of getting a sense about the health of us across all of our projects. And it's been a little bit more difficult to do it on a per project basis. And I think that's one thing that I've been able to try to do is see, is see if there's like, okay, what sort of leading and or lagging indicators might there be? Like, like how many pull requests have been open for more than a week or more than a couple of days? Things like, I forget the exact number we're looking at right now. Or how many rejected pull requests have happened, you know, or things related to like making sure that because part of it's also reminding the team that these things are important. So, so trying to think about like what's are, are things getting blocked somewhere in the process. We're not doing anything like tracking the number of deployments, but uh, a lot of our metrics are more around like trying to identify if there's things stuck or or how how many how many times in the last week or two did we have a um, a really big incident. So like, hopefully that way we at least have a conversation. was there what's like an incident that like a, like a major outage that required someone to write up a, like an incident report and, you know, document that. And maybe we need someone to share a little story about that. So it's, it's things like that, just to kind of get a sense of like how things are going on that level. But I think when it comes to our particular projects, we're trying to figure out, because I think we have a similar problem with different tools and like, do we use our Jira or do we use your Jira? And like, if we use yours, then like, and so it's like, what's the velocity look like on this project when we may have more people on the project versus less people? And does that number look worse because we, someone was on vacation for a week? So trying to come up with a good way to like manage that in an effective way. So I don't, I'm curious about that because we're, we're trying to figure some of that out ourselves too. I like the scorecarding idea. That's really interesting. And I love the PRs, right? Measuring rejected. Have you, there's a couple of tools out there that'll help you kind of analyze those things. Have you used any of those or tried any of those? There, there's been a couple, we've not dug too deeply into it. I mean, I know we've looked at stuff with like code climate to get some you know stats on things related to how things are getting scored. As you know, as you mentioned that, how many builds are failing is another one that we do. We, we do track. So how many known builds might be failing? But yeah, I think that you know those are things we're trying to find, and we're trying to even at some point get it down to more of a per project level as well. So, but it's just like at a high level when our development team all comes together to chat. Like, here's 
different people are assigned from having to go find those details. So it's not on me as the person that heads up the development team right now to go track that down myself. So everybody pulls those numbers together and we all report on it. And then we talk about things if there's too many of something like, okay, we've got more than one failed. Like we don't want any failed builds, but sometimes there's like, well, there's that one that was broken when we got it and it's still failing. And so we're working on getting that to pass at some point. So I was just kind of curious, you know, when we go back, tailing all the way back to, to maintainability of software, are there some measures, like some empirical measures we can get out of the source code itself? And, you know, whether it's stuff like that code climate quality has and aligning, like, can we do any correlation with things like PRs that get blocked or rejected? Or that'd be super interesting stuff beyond my pay grade. I think I'm not a, I'm not a stats guy, but. No, no, me, me neither. So, you know, as your team is approaching a project, you know, you touched a little bit on the tech lead. How much emphasis do you put on planning before your team dives directly into some code? Yeah, this comes up a lot because we are, you know, as a client services, we're starting projects all the time, right? And so figuring that out, you know, we have a pretty, we have this idea of a discovery that we do here at Sparkbox. And it's like, you know, it's like a, some people call it a sprint zero or something like that. But a lot of times we'll go in, we'll do some interviews of stakeholders, maybe some user studies or something like that. Almost all the time out of those things will come with like a tech strategy. And depending on how big or small we kind of imagine the ultimate goal being, those can take a couple of days to a, you know, a couple of weeks. Our goal is to get our strategy and like a medium term strategy in mind, knowing that things will change. We're going to learn more tomorrow than we knew today, but get that in mind so that we can get our team off and kind of get a roadmap for them to start. So, you know, we've got one where we did a, about a half day discovery, like a, a couple days ago, and the team will really start in earnest, you know, at the end of this week or early next week. And it's a lot of foundational stuff, getting GitHub set up, getting builds set up and, you know, things like that. While some of that stuff is happening, our tech lead can kind of sit there and start to think about, you know, what are some of the data contracts that we're going to have if we have some integration with other systems? You know, our design and UX can start to think about what the overall look and feel is going to be and maybe focus on the first set of features that we're going to build and decomp that, turn it into cards for like components and, and things like that. So we try to, we do try to get in there, you know, without, we don't want to have the full thing estimated. We don't want to have, or I'm sorry, designed out. We know that the design is only going to work once it meets the medium that we need, which is the web, and it's super squishy and stuff. So we need to, we don't want full fidelity comps, but we want to get an idea. Are we heading in the right direction? And then we'll just, let's let's get in there and start building things out um, so it's pretty clear. That sounds familiar. I'm always curious about how teams are navigating of like just enough design to give some clear direction, because I also... You know, if it's been my experience that sometimes you might outline a feature and then kind of throw that over the wall to the development team. And if they don't have some maybe visual representation of that, they're looking at a blank canvas and be like, all right, well, I guess I'll make my best effort here. And then sometimes that results into some pretty clunky things that sometimes if there's not some some direction there from someone that's thinking about the end user a little bit more specifically as their role. How do you, how does, it sounds like you, you folks are thinking about that pretty early on with your UX roles. Yeah, that's that's somewhat new. We've we've had UX as part of our organization about two, maybe three years, but it's been a big topic as of late. And that's more than just like human factor style UX. It's more about UX research and understanding how we solve problems. Our design team, our front end design team, actually they're they're all developers, so they're 
you know, everybody that's on our design team will work in HTML, CSS, and some JavaScript, right? So they, the reason that's important is because they're also that our UX division is a part of our design group. So those those folks work really closely together, and a lot of our front end design folks have become very good at executing on UX and asking the right questions, and they can implement that in the browser too. They're not just working in Figma or Sketch or what have you. So it's it that's helpful. And then our design, our dev team, you know, we have all kinds of different skills, but the one thing that's common to all of it is HTML and CSS. So it's essential because we work in the web that they be able to execute on the designs that we see and we work with and pairing comes up, you know, so our front end design team can kind of quote unquote polish the front end of our our systems along with the the development team and it's there's not this striking line between our development team and our design team it's it's really blurred some of our developers could easily be you know construed as designers on and maybe in other organizations and our front end design team you know could easily be construed as developers in other organizations so it's i think that that helps a little bit nice how does uh, qa play into that type of role do you have special people doing QA or do you use like your, like we use our UX folks is kind of also like the QA because they're the, the kind of circle back around after it's gone through like the development phase. So for a long time, all of our project managers had a, like a, another core competency as well because we just didn't have enough work um, on a continuing basis that we could just have, you know, five de- de- pro- uh, program and project managers at all times. Um, so a lot of our UX folks were also project managers. And I think that's fairly true today still. I don't know if it'll always be the case, but because of that, they are they are concerned with are we building the right thing and are we doing it, you know, in a great experience. So they they do come in that role. We don't have a specific QA group or department. You know, I think what we've we've found is that like everybody has to care about it. And at the end of the day, if we're, you know, we're thinking about things like are we are we having a lot of bugs or showstoppers or and measuring some of those things or caring at least about those things. You know, everybody, it's almost like that DevOps model was just kind of ingrained early that we all kind of care about whether or not we're shipping the right thing. And there's there's nobody out there that is, you know, the stopgap. Right. I think you, you made some good points there about earlier on about when we're talking about maintainable code, but also to getting a sense of how your organization approaches, you know, new projects and then always focusing a little bit more on the business value of those organizations. For those listening, <clears throat> that might be part of a team right now that, feels like you know they've been requesting permission to work on some maybe some technical debt issues for a while and they're not feeling like maybe their stakeholders are listening or maybe they don't care because they've heard not right now maybe a few too many times and they've given up asking any advice on how they could maybe reopen that conversation today yeah i think i think it helps to think about the impact that it's having on the ability to deliver new functionality it's not always fun but you know measurements tell, data tells a lot and if you can show that, hey, you know, we're still using this really old build system, you know, and it takes forever, you know, I'm going to take a video and record what it looks like for me to make a change and watch this three minute build between CSS changes or HTML changes or a new, you know, I'm adjusting some JavaScript to make sure that the animation that we want on this screen looks really great or the API call happens the way I want it. If, if you've got like a three minute build record some of that, you know, take a, a take quick time or, or, you know, whatever the tool you have, show that and, and do that in a demo. And, um, you know, let them know that this is, 
like this is these are dollars that are we're flushing down the toilet there, you know, and, and there's most likely the areas of the code base that you're frustrated with are also the ones impacting the ability to deliver functionality to customers. And if we can explain the cost to, of those things to them, I think that helps. It doesn't mean that they're going to make that decision to invest there. But I also think there's a little bit of responsibility on our parts to do a little bit of as we go. So as you get in there is making things a little bit better. You know, I think the from years ago, I don't know if a lot of people have heard the term anymore, but extreme programming group that was out there that kind of predated some of this agile stuff that we had out there, have out there, that group, you know, contended that 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 is our, our responsibility all the time. Right. And I think there's a balancing act there. I, I, I think we need to be making sure our code is in a good place. And I think we're the best judge of, in some cases, for when to spend a little bit of time doing those things and making it a little better, whether that's, you know, wrapping a nasty little area of code with with some seams around that part of the system to kind of separate it from the rest of the system. So we have a, a developer on our team who thinks a lot about software patterns and, you know, to hear the word like Demeter come up or some of the other software design patterns come up in very technical terms. He thinks about those things. And I think having those on our, at our organization, talking about those things across our team, it gives everybody on our team a little, some tactics, right? Because he cares about them a lot. Everybody else wants to be able to, to have great code, but he, he certainly cares about it enough to go and, and read and, and try these things. But his teaching everybody on the team uh, through his conversations and things along that line, how to do those things enables them to have those techniques and those skills while they're working on pieces of code that, that maybe aren't as clean as we'd like them and to make them a little bit better as they go. So it's always, I guess, raising our capabilities to, to manage refactoring as we go rather than trying to prioritize it. We do have lots of cases where we have to prioritize um, refactoring and it, it, it sometimes it's our fault, right? Um, we made decisions and they didn't work out the way we'd wanted uh, around the way we structure our code. And, and now we've got to figure out how to, how to handle that. I got some some really good advice there, some takeaways there. So as we're, we're wrapping up, you know, you had mentioned Accelerate earlier. Are there any non-software development specific books that you find yourself often recommending to people in our industry? Yeah, I do think Accelerate's a really good one. For those who are technical in nature and really want to work on, I think, fun, complex software. I think there's a lot of enterprise architecture books that are really great out there. Certainly Microsoft's got one. I think it's Patterns for Enterprise Architecture that's been out for, I think, a decade. I still find a lot of that stuff awesome to, to look at and think about. And as somebody who is trying to figure out how our software is structured so that folks can work within it well and feel empowered to build out the functionality they want, the idea of thinking about enterprise architecture, even if we're not building a huge system for some enterprise, it's maybe a startup or something like that. Having those things in mind allows me to describe those things. As somebody who's you know le leading teams now, I had to learn what that meant. I didn't really know, and I it comes. I, I've come to find out that I didn't even know what it meant to be managed either or be led. So there's a great book called The Manager's Path that's out there, which I think has taught me both of those things at the same time. And I think for those people who who want to know how to grow their career, even as a technical person, right? As an individual contributor, if you want to be just a great software developer and a great architect, I think that's a wonderful book because it it will help folks figure out how to grow their career in their day-to-day -day work. And that's by uh, Camille Fournier, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a great book. She'll be uh, an upcoming guest as well. So, Oh, I'm so jealous. Yeah, looking forward to that one. But having said that, uh, where can li- listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, I think uh, I write a lot at, at our CSparkBox Foundry uh, at csparkbox.com slash foundry. I, I talk a lot on Twitter at Cromwell Ryan. So it's just my last name, first name. Those are probably the two best places to find me. Well, excellent. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Ryan. Thank you so much for talking shop with us. Yeah, it was wonderful. I really appreciate it.